Section 27 of The Theory of Moral Sentiments This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith Part 6, Section 3, Chapter 1 Part 6 of the character of virtue consisting of three sections. Section 3. Chapter 1. Of Self-Command. The man who acts according to the rules of perfect prudence, of strict justice, and of proper benevolence, may be said to be perfectly virtuous. But the most perfect knowledge of those rules will not alone enable him to act in this manner. His own passions are very apt to mislead him, sometimes to drive him, and sometimes to seduce him to violate all the rules which he himself, in all his sober and cool hours, approves of. The most perfect knowledge, if it is not supported by the most perfect self-command, will not always enable him to do his duty. Some of the best of the ancient moralists seem to have considered those passions as divided into two different classes. First, into those which it requires a considerable exertion of self-command to restrain, even for a single moment, and secondly, into those which it is easy to restrain for a single moment, or even for a short period of time, but which, by their continual and almost incessant solicitations, are, in the course of a life, very apt to mislead into great deviations. Fear and anger, together with some other passions which are mixed or connected with them, constitute the first class. The love of ease, of pleasure, of applause, and of many other selfish gratifications constitute the second extravagant fear and furious anger it is often difficult to restrain even for a single moment the love of ease of pleasure of applause and other selfish gratifications it is always easy to restrain for a single moment or even for a short period of time but by their continual solicitations they often mislead us into many weaknesses which we have afterwards much reason to be ashamed of the former set of passions may often be said to drive, the latter to seduce us from our duty. The command of the former was, by the ancient moralists above alluded to, denominated fortitude, manhood, and strength of mind. That of the latter, temperance, decency, modesty, and moderation. The command of each of those two sets of passions, independent of the beauty which it derives from its utility, from its enabling us upon all occasions to act according to the dictates of prudence, of justice, and of proper benevolence, has a beauty of its own, and seems to deserve, for its own sake, a certain degree of esteem and admiration. In the one case, the strength and greatness of the exertion excites some degree of that esteem and admiration. In the other, the uniformity, the equality, and unremitting steadiness of that exertion. 
the man who in danger in torture upon the approach of death preserves his tranquillity unaltered and suffers no word no gesture to escape him which does not perfectly accord with the feelings of the most indifferent spectator necessarily commands a very high degree of admiration if he suffers in the cause of liberty and justice for the sake of humanity and the love of his country the most tender compassion for his sufferings the strongest indignation against the injustice of his persecutors the warmest sympathetic gratitude for his beneficent intentions the highest sense of his merit all join and mix themselves with the admiration of his magnanimity and often inflame that sentiment into the most enthusiastic and rapturous veneration the heroes of ancient and modern history who are remembered with the most peculiar favor and affection are many of them those who in the cause of truth liberty and justice have perished upon the scaffold and who behaved there with that ease and dignity which became them had the enemies of socrates suffered him to die quietly in his bed the glory even of that great philosopher might possibly never have acquired that dazzling splendor in which it has been beheld in all succeeding ages in the english history when we look over the illustrious heads which have been engraven by virtue and howbreaking there is scarce anybody i imagine who does not feel that the axe the emblem of having been beheaded which is engraved under some of the most illustrious of them under those of the sir thomas moores of the raleighs the russells the sydneys etc sheds a real dignity and interestingness over the characters to which it is affixed much superior to what they can derive from all the futile ornaments of heraldry with which they are sometimes accompanied nor does this magnanimity give lustre only to the characters of innocent and virtuous men it draws some degree of favourable regard even upon those of the greatest criminals and when a robber or highwayman is brought to the scaffold and behaves there with decency and firmness though we perfectly approve of his punishment we often cannot help regretting that a man who possessed such great and noble powers should have been capable of such mean enormities war is the great school both for acquiring and exercising this species of magnanimity death as we say is the king of terrors and the man who has conquered the fear of death is not likely to lose his presence of mind at the approach of any other natural evil in war men become familiar with death and are thereby necessarily cured of that superstitious horror with which it is viewed by the weak and unexperienced they consider it merely as the loss of life and as no further the object of aversion than as life may happen to be that of desire they learn from experience too that many seemingly great dangers are not so great as they appear and that with courage activity and presence of mind there is often a good probability of extricating themselves with honour from situations where at first they could see no hope the dread of death is thus greatly diminished and the confidence or hope of escaping it augmented they learn to expose themselves to danger with less reluctance they are less anxious to get out of it 
and less apt to lose their presence of mind while they are in it. It is the habitual contempt of danger and death which ennobles the profession of a soldier and bestows upon it in the natural apprehensions of mankind a rank and dignity superior to that of any other profession. The skillful and successful exercise of this profession in the service of their country seems to have constituted the most distinguishing feature in the character of the favorite heroes of all ages. Great warlike exploit, though undertaken contrary to every principle of justice, and carried on without any regard to humanity, sometimes interests us, and commands even some degree of a certain sort of esteem for the very worthless characters which conduct it. We are interested even in the exploits of the buccaneers, and read with some sort of esteem and admiration the history of the most worthless men, who, in pursuit of the most criminal purposes, endured greater hardships, surmounted greater difficulties, and encountered greater dangers than perhaps any which the ordinary course of history gives an account of. The command of anger appears upon many occasions not less generous and noble than that of fear. The proper expression of just indignation composes many of the most splendid and admired passages both of ancient and modern eloquence. The Philippics of Demosthenes, the Catalinarians of Cicero, derive their whole beauty from the noble propriety with which this passion is expressed. But this just indignation is nothing but anger restrained and properly attempered to what the impartial spectator can enter into. The blustering and noisy passion which goes beyond this is always odious and offensive, and interests us not for the angry man, but for the man with whom he is angry. The nobleness of pardoning appears upon many occasions superior even to the most perfect propriety of resenting. When either proper acknowledgments have been made by the offending party, or even without any such acknowledgments, when the public interest requires that the most mortal enemies should unite for the discharge of some important duty, the man who can cast away all animosity and act with confidence and cordiality towards the person who had most grievously offended him seems justly to merit our highest admiration. The command of anger, however, does not always appear in such splendid colors. Fear is contrary to anger, and is often the motive which restrains it, and, in such cases, the meanness of the motive takes away all the nobleness of the restraint. Anger prompts to attack, and the indulgence of it seems sometimes to shew a sort of courage and superiority to fear. The indulgence of anger is sometimes an object of vanity that of fear never is. Vain and weak men, among their inferiors, or those who dare not resist them, often affect to be ostentatiously passionate, and fancy that they show what is called spirit in being so. A bully tells many stories of his own insolence which are not true, and imagines that he thereby renders himself, if not more amiable and respectable, at least more formidable to his audience. Modern manners, which by favoring the practice of dueling may be said in some cases to encourage private revenge, contribute perhaps a good deal to render in modern times the restraint of anger by fear still more contemptible 
than it might otherwise appear to be. There is always something dignified in the command of fear, whatever may be the motive upon which it is founded. It is not so with the command of anger, unless it is founded altogether in the sense of decency, of dignity, and propriety, it never is perfectly agreeable. To act according to the dictates of prudence, of justice, and proper beneficence, seems to have no great merit where there is no temptation to do otherwise. But to act with cool deliberation in the midst of the greatest dangers and difficulties, to observe religiously the sacred rules of justice in spite both of the greatest interests which might tempt and the greatest injuries which might provoke us to violate them, never to suffer the benevolence of our temper to be damped or discouraged by the malignity and ingratitude of the individuals towards whom it may have been exercised, is the character of the most exalted wisdom and virtue. Self-command is not only itself a great virtue, but from it all the other virtues seem to derive their principal luster. The command of fear, the command of anger, are always great and noble powers. When they are directed by justice and benevolence, they are not only great virtues, but increase the splendor of those other virtues. They may, however, sometimes be directed by very different motives, and in this case, though still great and respectable, they may be excessively dangerous. The most intrepid valor may be employed in the cause of the greatest injustice. Amidst great provocations, apparent tranquillity and good humor may sometimes conceal the most determined and cruel resolution to revenge. The strength of mind requisite for such dissimulation, though always and necessarily contaminated by the baseness of falsehood, has, however, been often much admired by many people of no contemptible judgment. The dissimulation of Catherine of Medicis is often celebrated by the profound historian Davila, that of Lord Digby, afterwards Earl of Bristol, by the grave and conscientious Lord Clarendon, that of the first Ashley Earl of Shaftesbury, by the judicious Mr. Locke. Even Cicero seems to consider this deceitful character not indeed as of the highest dignity, but as not unsuitable to a certain flexibility of manners, which he thinks may notwithstanding be, upon the whole, both agreeable and respectable. He exemplifies it by the characters of Homer's Ulysses, of the Athenian Themistocles, of the Spartan Lysander, and of the Roman Marcus Crassus. This character of dark and deep dissimulation occurs most commonly in times of great public disorder, amidst the violence of faction and civil war. When law has become in a great measure impotent, when the most perfect innocence cannot alone ensure safety, regard to self-defense obliges the greater part of men to have recourse to dexterity, to address, and to apparent accommodation to whatever happens to be, at the moment, the prevailing party. This false character, too, is frequently accompanied with the coolest and most determined courage. The proper exercise of it supposes that courage, as death is commonly the certain consequence of detection. It may be employed indifferently, 
either to exasperate or to allay those furious animosities of adverse factions which impose the necessity of assuming it. And though it may sometimes be useful, it is at least equally liable to be excessively pernicious. The command of the less violent and turbulent passions seems much less liable to be abused to any pernicious purpose. Temperance, decency, modesty, and moderation are always amiable, and can seldom be directed to any bad end. It is from the unremitting steadiness of those gentler exertions of self-command that the amiable virtue of chastity, that the respectable virtues of industry and frugality, derive all that sober luster which attends them. The conduct of all those who are contented to walk in the humble paths of private and peaceable life derives from the same principle the greater part of the beauty and grace which belong to it, a beauty and grace which, though much less dazzling, is not always less pleasing than those which accompany the more splendid actions of the hero, the statesman, or the legislator. After what has already been said in several different parts of this discourse concerning the nature of self-command, I judge it unnecessary to enter into any further detail concerning those virtues. I shall only observe at present that the point of propriety, the degree of any passion which the impartial spectator approves of, is differently situated in different passions. In some passions, the excess is less disagreeable than the defect, and in such passions the point of propriety seems to stand high or nearer to the excess than to the defect. In other passions the defect is less disagreeable than the excess, and in such passions the point of propriety seems to stand low or nearer to the defect than to the excess. The former are the passions which the spectator is most, the latter those which he is least disposed to sympathize with. The former, too, are the passions of which the immediate feeling or sensation is agreeable to the person principally concerned, the latter those of which it is disagreeable. It may be laid down as a general rule that the passions which the spectator is most disposed to sympathize with and in which, upon that account, the point of propriety may be said to stand high, are those of which the immediate feeling or sensation is more or less agreeable to the person principally concerned, and that, on the contrary, the passions which the spectator is least disposed to sympathize with, and in which, upon that account, the point of propriety may be said to stand low, are those of which the immediate feeling or sensation is more or less disagreeable or even painful to the person principally concerned. This general rule, so far as I have been able to observe, admits not of a single exception. A few examples will at once both sufficiently explain it and demonstrate the truth of it. The disposition to the affections which tend to unite men in society, to humanity, kindness, natural affection, friendship, esteem, may sometimes be excessive. Even the excess of this disposition, however, renders a man interesting to everybody. Though we blame it, we still regard it with compassion, and even with kindness, and never with dislike. 
we are more sorry for it than angry at it. To the person himself, the indulgence even of such excessive affections is upon many occasions not only agreeable, but delicious. Upon some occasions, indeed, especially when directed, as is too often the case, towards unworthy objects, it exposes him to much real and heartfelt distress. Even upon such occasions, however, a well-disposed mind regards him with the most exquisite pity, and feels the highest indignation against those who affect to despise him for his weakness and imprudence. The defect of this disposition, on the contrary, what is called hardness of heart, while it renders a man insensible to the feelings and distresses of other people, renders other people equally insensible to his, and by excluding him from the friendship of all the world, excludes him from the best and most comfortable of all social enjoyments. The disposition to the affections which drive men from one another, and which tend, as it were, to break the bands of human society, the disposition to anger, hatred, envy, malice, revenge, is, on the contrary, much more apt to offend by its excess than by its defect. The excess renders a man wretched and miserable in his own mind, and the object of hatred, and sometimes even of horror, to other people. The defect is very seldom complained of. It may, however, be defective. The want of proper indignation is a most essential defect in the manly character, and upon many occasions renders a man incapable of protecting either himself or his friends from insult and injustice. Even that principle, in the excess and improper direction of which consists the odious and detestable passion of envy, may be defective. Envy is that passion which views with malignant dislike the superiority of those who are really entitled to all the superiority they possess. The man, however, who in matters of consequence tamely suffers other people, who are entitled to no such superiority, to rise above him or get before him, is justly condemned as mean-spirited. This weakness is commonly founded in indolence, sometimes in good nature, in an aversion to opposition, to bustle and solicitation, and sometimes, too, in a sort of ill-judged magnanimity, which fancies that it can always continue to despise the advantage which it then despises, and therefore so easily gives up. Such weakness, however, is commonly followed by much regret and repentance, and what had some appearance of magnanimity in the beginning frequently gives place to a most malignant envy in the end, and to a hatred of that superiority, which those who have once attained it may often become really entitled to, by the very circumstance of having attained it. In order to live comfortably in the world, it is upon all occasions as necessary to defend our dignity and rank as it is to defend our life or our fortune. Our sensibility to personal danger and distress, like that to personal provocation, is much more apt to offend by its excess than by its defect. No character is more contemptible than that of a coward. No character is more admired than that of the man who faces death with intrepidity and maintains his tranquillity and presence of mind amidst the most dreadful dangers. 
we esteem the man who supports pain and even torture with manhood and firmness and we can have little regard for him who sinks under them and abandons himself to useless outcries and womanish lamentations a fretful temper which feels with too much sensibility every little cross accident renders a man miserable in himself and offensive to other people a calm one which does not allow its tranquillity to be disturbed either by the small injuries or by the little disasters incident to the usual course of human affairs but which amidst the natural and moral evils infesting the world lays its account and is contented to suffer a little from both is a blessing to the man himself and gives ease and security to all his companions our sensibility however both to our own injuries and to our own misfortunes though generally too strong may likewise be too weak the man who feels little for his own misfortunes must always feel less for those of other people and be less disposed to relieve them the man who has little resentment for the injuries which are done to himself must always have less for those which are done to other people and be less disposed either to protect or to avenge them a stupid insensibility to the events of human life necessarily extinguishes all that keen and earnest attention to the propriety of our own conduct which constitutes the real essence of virtue we can feel little anxiety about the propriety of our own actions when we are indifferent about the events which may result from them the man who feels the full distress of the calamity which has befallen him who feels the whole baseness of the injustice which has been done to him but who feels still more strongly what the dignity of his own character requires who does not abandon himself to the guidance of the undisciplined passions which his situation might naturally inspire but who governs his whole behaviour and conduct according to those restrained and corrected emotions which the great inmate the great demigod within the breast prescribes and approves of is alone the real man of virtue the only real and proper object of love respect and admiration insensibility and that noble firmness that exalted self-command which is founded in the sense of dignity and propriety are so far from being altogether the same that in proportion as the former takes place the merit of the latter is in many cases entirely taken away but though the total want of sensibility to personal injury to personal danger and distress would in such situations take away the whole merit of self-command that sensibility however may very easily be too exquisite and it frequently is so when the sense of propriety when the authority of the judge within the breast can control this extreme sensibility that authority must no doubt appear very noble and very great but the exertion of it may be too fatiguing it may have too much to do the individual by a great effort may behave perfectly well but the contest between the two principles the warfare within the breast may be too violent to be at all consistent with internal tranquillity and happiness the wise man whom nature has endowed with this too exquisite sensibility and whose too lively feelings have not been sufficiently blunted and hardened by early education and proper exercise will avoid as much as duty and propriety will permit 
the situations for which he is not perfectly fitted. The man whose feeble and delicate constitution renders him too sensible to pain, to hardship, and to every sort of bodily distress, should not wantonly embrace the profession of a soldier. The man of too much sensibility to injury should not rashly engage in the contests of faction. Though the sense of propriety should be strong enough to command all those sensibilities, the composure of the mind must always be disturbed in the struggle. In this disorder the judgment cannot always maintain its ordinary acuteness and precision, and though he may always mean to act properly, he may often act rashly and imprudently, and in a manner which he himself will in the succeeding part of his life be for ever ashamed of. A certain intrepidity, a certain firmness of nerves and hardiness of constitution, whether natural or acquired, are undoubtedly the best preparatives for all the great exertions of self-command. End of section 27